electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome, everybody, to Power Lunch, where we charge a lot less than a ticket to a Taylor Swift concert. I'm Tyler Matheson, along with Contessa Brewer. Here's what's ahead. Not backing down, a Fed official says the inflation fight is far from over. The benchmark rate may have to go a lot higher than previously thought. Is the risk of recession rising, and is it priced into the market? Plus, a bargain hunter's holiday, or will consumers pay up for high-end items? We will see where the money is expected to flow in retail and which stocks could come out winners, Contessa. Tyler, stocks are way off the lows of the session. The Dow right now in the green just barely, but it's hanging on in there where it had been down 314 points at the low. The S&P right now is still off a quarter of a percentage point and the Nasdaq composite off a tenth of a percentage point. Stocks really pressured here by rising yields. The yield on the two-year trading at about 4.46%. And oil prices faltering down more than 4%, closing in here on $80 a barrel, 82.06 right now, down more than 30% from the June highs. Tyler. Contessa, thank you very much. The Fed rate hikes are having only limited impact on inflation so far. This, according to James Bullard, he uh, spooked the markets today by suggesting the worst case scenario where the Fed hikes rates to as high as, sit down for this, 7%. Rising rates are already slamming the housing market, of course. Builders starting to pull back. Earnings season, well, we're hearing a lot about the impact of inflation and those rising rates. Let's get into all of that with our team of reporters right now, led by Steve Leisman, then Diana Olick, Mike Santoli. Steve, we begin with you. James Bullard, once again, uh, he's not afraid to speak his mind. No, he's not. And he did say that he warned today that his models that he's been uh, using show the Fed funds rate could need to rise as high as 7% to bring down inflation. Poured a bit of cold water on those investors hoping for an early end to rate hikes. And he said the current funds rate of 375 to 4% is not, quote, sufficiently restrictive to cool the economy and bring down inflation. Uh, Here's the chart that he put out under dovish assumptions. In his model, Bullard said the funds rate could potentially stop around 5%, but under more hawkish assumptions, could go as high as 7%. He seemed to like somewhere in the middle in a conversation he had with reporters later. His comments leading to higher treasury yields in markets and a rise in, est- in the, estimated, uh, the estimate for the peak funds rate in June 2023, above 5%, you can see, once again. We'll see where new Boston Fed President Susan Collins stands on all this. I'm going to talk to her exclusively tomorrow on Squawk on the Street at 10 a.m. Uh, and then, C- Contessa, back to you. All right. Thank you for that, Steve. Well, Bullard says rates may have to rise further from here, but where they are right now has been enough to slow down the housing market. Let's go to Diana Olick for that piece of the story. Diana. Yeah, Contessa, and you have to look no farther than the home builders. After the big drop in builder sentiment we saw yesterday, today, it was single-family housing starts and building permits. They're now down to the lowest level since May of 2020 when everything ground to a halt at the start of the pandemic. 
And it's all, of course, because of rising mortgage rates, not to mention inflation and home prices. Mortgage rates dropped back a little bit last week on that better-than-expected CPI number, but they're pushing back higher again this week. And that, of course, has builders having to drop prices and push incentives. And there was a big jump in those incentives just this month. All of that has the home builder stocks having their worst week in a while since September. In fact, the ITB, which is a home building ETF, is down now about three and a half percent on the day. So not a great picture for the stocks, Tyler. All right, Diana, thanks very much. And if you want to know how the economy is doing, just check out earnings, why don't you? The reports to see what big companies are saying. And Mike Santelli has been following all of that for us. Amidst all of this, uh, amidst rising rates, high inflation, a midterm election, we've got a lot of earnings reports. Uh, tell us where we stand, Mike. Well, Tyler, at the very broadest level, the top line of the economy is still growing pretty robustly. In fact, 10 or 11 percent sales growth across the S&P 500 shows you that uh, with 9 percent growth just among retailers. So it does tell you that revenues are not scarce right now. The problem is a lot of that reflects inflation, not real growth, not all of it, but a lot of it. A lot of the commentary, especially from consumer goods and retail CEOs, are that Consumers might be getting at their limits of their ability to tolerate and absorb those price increases, so they're not betting on too many more to come. Therefore, the focus turns to cost-cutting, preserving margins, working down inventories, and preparing, perhaps, from this e for this economic slowdown that is broadly anticipated but isn't really showing up just yet uh, in the overall numbers, aside from some areas in housing. Services over goods has been a theme as well, and capital spending has really remained pretty resilient, and therefore industrials have done fairly well. People feel as if you have to invest uh, to sort of make things domestically as the supply chains have been tested. Turn back to Steve. Thank you, Mike. Let me turn back to Steve Leesman with a question. How uh, out of the mainstream, Steve, is uh, President Bullard when he says seven, seven plus percent, maybe the terminal rate for Fed funds? My sense is that most of the consensus on the on the Fed is somewhere in the four and three quarters to five and a quarter area. Uh, you're right. He for, for the median dot or for the what do they call it? The modal outlook, the most likely Ooh. outlook. That is true um, that uh, most Fed officials are in that uh, five, four point six percent, I think. And by the way, let, let's be clear. Uh, Powell uh, in the last uh, uh, Fed uh, press conference said that the uh, peak funds rate is higher than uh, estimated in September. We'll get another look in December at where they stand. But here's the thing. Um, Bullard wasn't giving you that modal outlook. He was giving you a range that said, if I put these assumptions in or these assumptions in, I get five. Mm -hmm. If I do another one, I get seven. So his, his upper end, you know, Tyler, I don't think he's saying it's going to be 7%. Gotcha. I think he's saying, look out, this is a possibility. Okay, good, uh, good to clear that, clear that up, because I, I would have walked away thinking, oh, he's saying it's going to 7%. But in truth, he's saying that would be the sort of upper bound of a range of possibilities. Upper bound, exactly. Oh, exactly. Okay, so if, if that's a range and that's a worst-case scenario, Mike, how much of this is the market already factoring in? There and nor nor would you expect it to be to go to the for, sort of the furthest extent of where short rates might go. The market has roughly priced in that kind of broad consensus outlook that the Fed has has conveyed to us. Right, so these the Fed funds rate getting up toward five percent. Really, what's weighing on equity sentiment is the fact that longer term treasury yields are much lower than the short term ones. So what that reflects to some degree is the rising perceived risk 
that the Fed will have to engineer a slowdown, a recession, something that will not only undercut inflation, but also uh, really erode the growth outlook. And so I don't think necessarily that the market's adjustment has to happen uh, in terms of where short rates go as we can foresee them over the next several months. It's much more about what is the effect of that policy beyond that point. Diana, where do where do rising rates pinch the most in terms of home buyers? Well, they pinched the most in affordability, of course, because home prices were already inflated up 41 percent just since the start of the pandemic. That is 10 times the historical home appreciation rate. So when you have prices up for the homes that high, even as they start to come back a little bit and they're coming back very slowly, um, it's that higher interest rate because everybody buys a home to look at the monthly payment. You don't buy the price, you buy the payment. And with that monthly payment significantly higher and adding to those costs, that's what causing buyers to pull back. Now, now, as we see prices start to come down, you would think that buyers would say, okay, I'm going to get in now. But then there's always that fear of, wait, if I buy now and prices come down even further, then I'm losing money immediately. It's like walking off a, used, uh, a car lot, a new car lot, and you're car suddenly is worth less. That's not supposed to happen with houses. So that's another fear that's keeping buyers on the sidelines. I'm just, I'm just curious, though, and, and you've been looking at the real estate market um, for a long time, Diana. The, you know, I remember my parents paying a, a ridiculously high mortgage rate that I never encountered. When, I, when it came time for me to buy a home, I was looking at rates around 5%. Right. And that's what most people in their memories have. It's that 3% range over the last two years or 5% when you bought. But, but look, but, I but bought when it was see, 9%. But, but home prices were not this high. Well, and we that's but we didn't reason. see a frozen housing market for, no. for decades. People just got used to the idea that you were going to pay a higher mortgage interest rate, whatever the house cost. Because the monthly payment was lower, and that's even if the mortgage rate was higher, home prices were not so high that that monthly rate was not so high. Back in, uh, in, in the 1980s, when mortgage rates jumped up to 18 percent, you did see the housing market freeze. But over the past, you were able to deal with five, six, seven, even nine percent mortgage rates because the price of a home was lower. So then that monthly yeah. payment was lower. And now that rate is what, 6.6 percent did I just see? Yeah, we were over 7%. Now we're at around 6.65%. It did drop back last week. But again, it is more than twice where we were at the start of this year. All right, Diana, thank you for that. Steve, Mike, I really appreciate the conversation. What does this say about the state of the economy and the risk of recession here? Let's bring in Bill Lee, chief economist at the Milken Institute for more. Bill, how fast, how high, and for how long do these rates keep rising? Contessa, those are the main questions that Chirp Hall wants to focus on. Where's the rate going and how long are we going to have to keep it up there? And the message from the Fed has always been since Jackson Hole, the tune is we're bringing inflation back to 2%. And every speaker that we've had so far has had a different variation, different tempo, focused on different accent notes, but they all are saying the same thing. Don't expect a pause until we see inflation come back. And that may require that the unemployment rate goes up to beyond 5%. And so, so, so. That's the kind of unemployment uh, hit that the Fed is trying to prevent by being credible and having people believe they're serious about this. And if people are serious about this, that means that they should stop spending. And rather than being laid off to stop spending, they should anticipate the Fed is going to be serious and keep conditions very tight until we see 2% inflation. Well, I, I mean, that's hard advice for all of America to say, hey, if you don't stop your spending, stop going to Las Vegas, stop rolling the <laughs> dice, that, that you're going to start seeing these uh, rates go even higher. 
How much of this is also pressure on the Fed bill? Because they see what happens with the markets. Every time there's an indication that inflation is declining just a bit or softening just a bit or the rate is coming down, just a hint, you see the market rallying. Is there sort of a a parent's prerogative to say, no, I told you I was going to do this and now I've got to stick to my word? And that's one of the difficulties with modern uh, monetary policy is that the Fed has become much more transparent and the market absolutely refuses to believe the Fed will take on the cost of 5% unemployment rates. And so the, every time there's a turn in the numbers or we get a good CPI number, the markets are complaining, oh my God, there's no way that the Fed is going to be raising rates and they're going to pivot. And that pivot talk has made the Fed policy making so much harder. Uh, and in some ways, uh, I think uh, uh, President Bullard has really put a high note out there and said, look, if you don't if you don't cut this out and believe us in, in, in our in our main tune of bringing back two percent inflation, we may have to raise rates as high as seven percent. And I think that's the message that is supposed to shock the markets into believing we are serious. We're not going to pivot until we see two percent. Do you wish the Fed and its uh, and its uh, policymakers would talk less? <laughs> Well, I wish they would be clear in how they talk. Um, I think um, the, the fact that the, some some people have said, well, we need to take into account the cumulative tightening. We have to take into account policy lags. The markets are clearly are interpreting that as a sign of a potential pivot. And I think the, 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 the speech writers at the Fed uh, have to be aware of that and, and ease up on use of these terms that imply pivot or at least qualify them very clearly and say, we're not going to do it now. We may do it, but not now. I think of inflation. Have you seen these things called lantern flies, Bill? Do you know what I'm talking about? The lantern flies, the very invasive yes. species. And, and, you, and you try, you see them there, and they're very beautiful animals. I think of them as like inflation. You try and step on them, but they're very fast. They get away from you. But when you step on them, you better crush that son of a gun. Because uh, if you don't, they're going to get away. That's what I think. I think the Fed sees inflation as a lantern fly, and they're going to they're going to step on it, and they're going to keep grinding their foot in. Beautiful, but it's a beautiful when you think beautiful, (laughs) a beautiful invasive, a beautiful metaphor, Tyler, a beautiful metaphor, and and I think the the fact that we have so many lantern flies now is because the Fed got bit by these flies during the transitory talk period. And, and the transitory talk really has hurt the Fed credibility. And I think right now they're trying to rebuild it by saying, forget about pivot until we see a clear path to 2%. Bill, do we have insidious optimism to go along with insidious inflation? I mean, if you're looking at the market and we've been through this, nothing is going to keep us down. We're going to just keep the little engine that chugs away. Are you? Do you think that this market participants and, and, and the nation at large, the willingness to spend, even though we may be facing recession, is it just American optimism at work? I think it's it's also a, a failure of uh, reporting on what the condition of the American economy is. Everyone's talking about how we have trillions of dollars worth of savings that potentially consumers can spend. Well, you know, th- those trillions of dollars belong to the upper half of the consumers. Mm-hmm. The lower half are p- pulling credit card debt. They're pulling up, uh, you know, the, the getting second jobs, they're barely making ends meet. And I think the bimodal economy is something we haven't focused on enough. There's a lot of suffering out there, uh, but but somehow this notion that co- American consumers are going to spend because they have so much savings is a misnomer. And I think that's the image that we have to get rid of because that's what the market's feeding on. The market is feeding on that notion that, my God, that strong consumer is going to keep inflation up. Well, it's only some consumers that are doing that. that. And that's other a great consumers point. are being killed. Yeah, it's a great point. And any, anybody who walks through a major 
American city right now can see the other side of this and see where the other half is living. And, and you raise an interesting point, Bill. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right, coming up, we are following the money this holiday season. Will the dollars flow into luxury or the discounters? We've got the bull case for both of them, plus hunting for value. A veteran investor found two names that have been clobbered with strong cash flows that he says are worth owning right now. He will name them in just a few minutes' time. But as we head to a break, take a look at the shares of Alibaba, which are higher despite a mixed earnings report. The company beat on the bottom line but saw its cloud services revenue grow at its slowest pace on record. More power lunch in two minutes. That stock up 7%, however. Summer, the best time of year, usually doesn't come with a great deal. Soaring temperatures come with soaring prices. But what if there's another way? With IKEA, your summer plans can last longer than two weeks of vacation and be more affordable. Here, everyone can have lounge chair access, no reservations needed. From affordable outdoor furniture to stylish accessories, we have all the essentials you need to soak up summer in style, no matter the size of your space. Start planning a better summer with IKEA. It's your outdoor dreams inside your budget. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. (laughs) That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. (laughs) I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. All right, the uh, closer we get to the holidays, the more questions emerge about the consumer. Some retailers say they expect spending to be strong. Others see cracks. So where will the money be spent? On luxury brands like Burberry, Tapestry, Capri? Or will uh, shoppers look for bargains at places like BJ's, Dollar Tree, Costco, and more? Here to discuss the outlook for spending is Oliver Chen, analyst at Cowan and Columbia Business School professor, and Scott Mushkin. He's analyst at R5 Capital. Gentlemen, welcome. Uh, Oliver, let me start with you. You see a bright sky ahead for the luxury retailers, the the tapestries, the Capris, and others. Why? Yeah, we are excited, Tyler. Great to be here. Happy holidays. Luxury is well positioned to continue to win on pricing, power brands. People are going out again. And these brands are achieving pricing gains, and people love it. People do want magic in their lives. They want handbags, and they want fashion. It makes them feel great, and there's lots of great innovation. Our top idea is LVMH, Louis Vuitton. It's it's a $350 billion market cap company. They spend $7 billion on advertising and marketing. A U.S. brands spend between three, $300 to $500 on marketing. So that's an idea that we really like. And consumers are bifurcated. They're really buying luxury, and they like luxury, and we're getting pricing. Uh, and they're also looking for extreme value. You know, I'm a big jewelry shopper at Costco, and I buy caviar at Costco. That actually has... of their customers are above 100K there, too. So don't count that out as an idea as well. So you count Costco as as part of the luxury um, uh, sort of category? I think Costco has an amazing premise. And all people love value. And Costco is a really fun treasure hunt. They are one of the biggest fine wine importers. They're also one of the biggest diamond retailers. 
and their quality is second to none, and they have a fixed margin. So you're getting a great deal no matter what. It's a members-only model. Very uh, well thought of merchandising right. organization, premium jewelry. Darling, I got it at Costco. I was going to say, he bought it at Costco. It doesn't have quite well, the same Tiffany ring to it, Costco, does it? <laughs> you know, Tiffany's part of LVMH, right. uh, and diamonds are a girl's best friend. You know, so really thinking about value in, in this treasure hunt. I like them both. You know. well, well, Scott, let's talk about the, the, I mean, in our, I love our headline on this story, bougie versus bargain. Are you more of a fan for bargains going into the holiday season? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, by the way, Costco is one of the best retailers out there. Um, and so, you know, they'll probably have a decent holiday. I think the challenge you have right now, and I think your last guest was talking about, is the bifurcation um, that's going on in, in the economy. I mean, necessities of life are up so much. Um, you know, we do a lot of field research, whether for our consulting clients or for, for research. Um, and, uh, you know, the government's saying food at home's up 12, 13%. We're tracking up 20 in some markets. Uh, we all know what's going on with some of the utilities, and that's pretty enormous pressure, particularly on that lower to middle income consumer. Uh, so we definitely think like the Walmarts of the world are going to do well during the holidays and other people will struggle as you get up the income, as, as Oliver was talking, you know, that's almost a whole different stratosphere. Um, but we do think there are going to be cracks there, too. I mean, we're not optimistic about retail retail generally um, we, walking, a, walking stores with a client of ours, a consulting client of ours last week and retail runs a retailer and they still can't find labor. Uh, Lowe's, you know, saying they're going to raise labor and, you know, look what the Fed is doing. Um, we're likely, if history is a guide, to push into recession mid to late 2023. And that's just not good for retail. I, um, I, I see on your buy list that you have names like Whole Earth brand, Brands, uh, Sprouts Farmers, Natural Grocers. When I look at, at those kind of names, I think, well, those are splurges in that particular segment, that if you are going to a natural food store and you're willing to pay a premium for organic or whatever, you're still choosing luxury. Do you think that that's likely to change as we head maybe closer to recession? Yeah, we'll hear from Natural Grocers today, a small cap name based out of uh, Colorado. You know, we were a little bit more cautious on that because of exactly what you're saying. You know, Sprouts, we think there's it's, it's more of a discount. Um, we think there's a lot of work to do with that company. Um, we like how they're running their stores. We think there's an opportunity for them uh, to improve how they go to the consumer. So I'd say it's more of a special fit, special situation, rather than, um, you know, everything is going right for them. Um, but you got to watch the consumer. There's no doubt about it. Mm -hmm. We've gotten, gotten a lot more cautious on the food at home sector. Um, especially after what Walmart said on their call about how you know, we could be deflationary. We're a little tight on time, but I notice that both of you have in your coverage universe Target. Oliver, uh, I'll give you the last word here. What happened with Target, and is it a one-off or something deeper? Uh, Target had a really tough time. The back half of October was very difficult with softer consumer. Um, so what we're hopeful is that they've done a good job further flushing out inventories, offering tons of great value and promotions, and that should be helpful going forward. However, um, Scott's right. There's so many cross currents right now in October. Um, these the slowing traffic is something we're watching a lot, and and we're we're expecting a very promotional holiday season. So shoppers will get great bargains. What people are doing is waiting. People are waiting to get better bargains, and that's something we're paying attention to. And inventory levels are higher 
Last year, we had trouble getting leggings. We had trouble getting necklaces. This year, uh, there's plenty to go around. So we'll see. But a, handbags are it. Beauty is it. Uh, luxury still lives. You do have to be selective. Now, Oliver has just given the, you your the, Christmas No, the world ideas. is grateful that I had trouble getting leggings <laughs> last year. Uh, Oliver, Scott, thank you very much, gentlemen. Uh, if, I'm sure we'll see you before the holiday season is over. Uh, meantime, uh, a happy Thanksgiving to both of you. Thank happy you. Happy holidays. Happy Thanksgiving to you, too. Thanks. Coming up, the new CEO of FTX is not mincing words. He calls the company's situation and the former leadership a complete failure. We'll have more on that next. Plus, further ahead, one, one startup, The Grass, is definitely greener. Today's clean start, diving into a company making electric self-driving lawnmowers. And we'll be right back. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? <clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome back to Power Lunch. Some stark new words out today from the new CEO of FTX, John Ray, who was appointed to help oversee the company's bankruptcy. In a federal filing today, the CEO said, never in my career have I seen such a complete failure of corporate controls and such a complete absence of trustworthy financial information has occurred here. From compromised systems integrity and faulty regulatory oversight abroad to the concentration of control in the hands of a very small group of, and again, I'm quoting, inexperienced unsophisticated and potentially compromised individuals, this situation is unprecedented. Well, for reference, John Ray helped oversee some of the biggest bankruptcies ever, including Enron's. Tyler? That's going to take years to untangle. What a mess. All right, let's uh, let's, uh, toss over to Brian Sullivan, CNBC News Update. Hi, Brian. Yeah, hey, Tyler and Contessa. This could be a mess in Buffalo. All right, winter starting with a vengeance. Parts of Pennsylvania and New York are about to get crushed with snow. Buffalo may get up to five feet. Beginning tonight, a state of emergency has been declared in 11 counties. In Arizona, defeated Republican Carrie Lake has refused to concede the race for Arizona governor. She says she's assembling lawyers and evidence of election irregularities. NBC News and others have called the race for Democrat Katie Hobbs with nearly all votes counted. And a big win for fishermen and some Native American tribes in California. Regulators have approved the largest dam removal project ever. $500 million demolition project will take down four dams on a major river in California, second biggest, by the way, opening up hundreds of miles of salmon habitat. The dam's hydroelectric power units are outdated and seen as no longer needed with other sources of electricity available to return the river to its first free-flowing state in more than one Hundred years now, Contessa. I know you. You went to Syracuse. Five feet of snow for you was like spring. Yeah, right? yeah. I mean, uh-huh. like that. That I might go out wearing my high-heeled sandals. No problem. Just tunnel <laughs> under it. <laughs> Brian, thank you. Thanks. All righty, ahead on Power Lunch, hunting for value. We'll parse through this volatile market with Surat Sethi to find some names that are just too cheap to ignore, Contessa. Plus, the consumer stocks are one such group experiencing pressure as purse strings tighten. We'll trade three key movers. Bath and Body Works, Macy's, and Netflix. Power Lunch will be right back. 
90 minutes left in the trading day. We want to get you caught up on the markets on stocks and bonds and commodities and a little value hunting. Let's begin with the markets still lower after those hawkish comments from James Bullard. But we did get a sharp leg higher earlier this afternoon, some attributing that spike to technicals. Only two sectors higher today. We have tech, healthcare, United Health and Merck and Amgen helping prevent the Dow from even bigger losses. And Alibaba higher despite posting results that showed slower growth as China's strict COVID policies weighed on consumer spending. You can see it's up more than six and a half percent. Hopes that those policies will be eased may be behind some of that stock gain today. Now to the bond market where rates are rising following hawkish comments from Fed presidents, especially James Bullard. Rick Santelli is tracking the action for us. Hello, Rick. Hello, Contessa. And all you need to do is look at a two-year note, one of the shorter maturities, to see how James Bullard's words affected the market. And definitely yields pushed higher. Now, maybe they would have been higher because yesterday was one of those days there was so much short covering the Treasury complex, we saw yields drop rather dramatically. But no matter how you slice it, he had a big effect on the shorter maturities. But the further down the curve you go, the less of an effect it had. And if you look at an October 1st of HYG, and I picked a high-yield ETF for good reason. When there's nervousness in the Treasury market, the high-yield or less investment-grade quality securities usually deteriorate, which means you want to see the HYG go down for deterioration, up for less. Well, this chart doesn't look so bad, but when you open it up to 2008 and look at the effects of the credit crisis and what happened in March of 2020, you can really see that the HYG is not doing all that well, but it's trading in an orderly fashion. And finally, three months to tens. Everybody's preoccupied with yield curves and inversions. That particular two-week inversion is the 15-and-a-half-year most inverted it's been, although it's less inverted than yesterday. And in the final analysis, James Bullard's comments mean a lot to short maturities. And I'll give you an example. If you look at a normal yield curve, what you should see is a steep yield curve, where short maturities to long maturities, the rates keep going up. But what happens when the Fed starts to raise rates is the curve starts to flatten, and ultimately, the shorter maturities do better and the long maturities do worse. And that's the dynamic driven by James Bullard's comments. Maybe you get a 7% Fed funds rate. But you might only have a 475 10-year. Contessa, back to you. Uh, Rick, that was some pretty amazing use of television props. Well done. Thank you, sir. Oil closing deep in the red right now. Let's head to Pippa Stevens for those numbers. Hi, Pippa. Hey, Contessa. Oil is tumbling today with demand destruction, the primary concern here. We've heard from Fed speakers, including Mary Daly, who said pausing is off the table. And then we have China continuing to take aggressive measures to curb COVID cases. And both of these are demand destructive for oil within the two largest economies in the world. Let's check on prices. WTI is down 4.7 percent at 81.61. That front month contract, which does roll on Monday, got within less than 20 cents above the January contract. And that's the tightest since December 2021 and really illustrates this drop off on the demand side, according to Mizuho's Bob Yeager, but he added that it's hard to believe the response given the upcoming December 5th deadline when the EU ban on Russian oil goes into effect. Now, natural gas is moving higher today after a smaller than expected storage build. Plus, a colder temperature is expected for this weekend is also supporting demand. Contessa? 
but thank you for that. Time now to go value hunting. We may be in the red today, but stocks have been on a nice upward trajectory the past month. Nine out of 11 sectors are in the green. The Dow's up more than 10%. So are there still names that you can pick up that look cheap? With us now is Sarat Sethi, Managing Partner and Portfolio Manager at DCLA. He's also a CNBC contributor. It strikes me, Fidelity put out this note, Sarat, that says, on average, uh, 401k amounts have dropped 23% year on year. A lot of people, even those who are in it for the long term, have got to be looking right now for how do I make up some of what I've lost? Are there plays for them to, to consider? Absolutely. And again, one of the things to just know is even if you're down this much, what you don't want to do is try and time the market and get out and say, I'm going to come back when it's lower. So we've been looking at a couple of stocks. Um, so for example, PayPal. PayPal is down over 15% this year. The growth rate of PayPal for the next year and going forward is 15% on its earnings. And the stock is trading at 18 times earnings. It is completely one of those stocks that has been put in the kind of bad basket because they've missed over the last three quarters their earnings estimates. And, and a lot of that had to do with kind of pull forward during COVID, a lot of that had to do with management, uh, you know, having issues in terms of buying new customers. But I think, uh, you know, PayPal's got religion now, and they've got a couple of new things that just happened. One is a partnership with Amazon uh, using Venmo, and then also with Apple Pay. So I think uh, the company now is going to, you know, increase operating efficiency, grow earnings 15%. And we haven't seen a multiple of 18 on PayPal, uh, I don't think ever. The stock is always traded in the 30s, 40s, and sometimes even higher. Let's move on to SVB Financial and why you think that's a value. So, Tyler, Silicon Valley Bank is one of the stars uh, out, out west. This company, um, a lot of venture capitalists and life sciences, uh, early tech, use them uh, to fund their investments. Now, what happened was those companies are now using all the cash to fund their investments. At the same time, rates moved up so high, so the net interest margin hurt them much faster than they could. But this is one of those companies that's trading at 14 times earnings. They have such a huge space ahead of them. And now they're also in the wealth management and investment management business. So it's a really premier company that has been kind of correlated with tech, but they've really diversified their businesses. And I think, you know, you buy this stock here, you look at it, it's down over 60%. They don't have bad loans. They don't have credit mm. quality issues. It's just that a couple of things happened at the same time. And you had some growth investors who are in the stock that has now become a value stock and the rest of the financial world is trying to kind of figure out what they really are. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess the diversification is is they're they're lucky they did it because the deal activity out there is pretty is pretty sparse right now. The deal activity and also the the exactly for the venture capitalists for, mm -hmm. for all the warrants that they had. So compared to where they were five years ago, they're a very different company, mm -hmm. but they're being treated as if they're still the same type of company. And I think as the rates stabilize, they're going to make money off an net interest margin, especially as more and more deposits come on and they have to lend at a much lower rate than they could kind of uh, borrow at. All right. Surat, thank you very much. Have a good holiday, thank my you. friend. Surat Sethi. You too. All right. Up next, uh, we got gas and grass. Guzzlers, traditional lawnmowers, emit as much CO2 each year as 900,000 cars. I'm feeling guilty. But one company has a solution. Clean Start is next.
You hate mowing the lawn? Actually, I don't. I kind of like mowing the lawn. But, but let me tell you this. The environment probably hates it more than you might hate it. Gas-powered lawnmowers are just as bad as gas-powered cars. Yes, they are. And electric mowers so far haven't really stepped up until now. Diana Olick. Diana Olick does everything here. She's on the real estate. She's on the and she's on the clean beat. Uh, with us with a look now at a company empowering landscapers literally in her continuing series on climate startups. Hi, Di. Hi, Ty, and it's because real estate and climate are all connected. Now, gas-powered lawnmowers emit about 40 million metric tons of carbon a year. That's equal to 900,000 cars. But now a startup called Scythe is making commercial-scale electric mowers that not only cut the carbon, but can run on their own. We enable the landscaping industry to transition from gas to electric mowers by using autonomy to sort of sneak that technology in and eliminate the emissions with a different business model. It's kind of like a Roomba for a lawn. Scythe has built what it says is the first fully autonomous electric lawnmower that can run on its own for 8 to 11 hours at a time, depending on the grass length. If the person doesn't have to ride it the whole time, they can go off and do other work and take better care of the outdoor spaces, which ultimately will lower the cost of maintaining outdoor spaces and help us cultivate more green space, which cools our cities. Scythe doesn't sell the mowers to landscapers, but leases them, so clients don't have to make a huge investment while the technology is still improving. The leasing model gives us the flexibility to measure it up against how we normally operate, to move it up and down, and to really work with it as we learn and develop the kind of the AI and the technology and, and work, work it into our operation. Scythe Robotics is backed by True Ventures, Inspired Capital, Zig Capital, and Lemnos. Total funding so far, $18.6 million. Now, so far, these are only commercial mowers for landscape companies, but you can imagine the potential here for the consumer market. Morrison also says the recently passed Inflation Reduction Act gives tax breaks that will benefit the growth of his startups. Ty? So it knows where it's been before. In other words, it can see where it has cut. It can absolutely see what it has cut and it can see where it's going. And as you saw with the dog, it can be very careful. So if you see something in its path or if it sees something in its path, it, it will stop. And it's also run off an iPad. So you can have the person who, you know, is the maintenance contractor there on the iPad kind of telling it where to go. Or it can follow a model that's already preloaded onto the iPad. So it's not it's not a. I guess it's not like powering or driving a drone. In other words, I don't have to sit there and steer it with a joystick. No. It, it, no. It knows. It knows. Diana, thank you. There it goes. A Roomba for your life. Really, uh, really cool. Sign me up. That's pretty cool. Still to come, paramounting pressure. Paramount posting some solid subscriber numbers, and it's sending Netflix shares lower. We'll discuss further in today's three-stock lunch. minutes to the top of the hour and it's time for three stock lunch we're looking at some of today's big movers netflix taking a pause from its recent run-up after competitor paramount said it saw its biggest sign-up day ever this weekend and macy soaring on the back of strong earnings uh, bath and body works on pace for its best day since 2020 as earnings beat and the retailer raised its outlook let's bring in delano Sapporo. New Street Advisors founder and CEO, and a CNBC contributor. Delano, it's great to see you today. Uh, let's start first with Netflix. Uh, I, I was under the impression that the later comers 
We're struggling more, and yet Paramount seems to be gaining some steam. Yeah, no, the later comers are not struggling at all. They've been growing pretty rapidly. If you look at what Disney Plus is doing, if you look at what Paramount Plus is doing, uh, Paramount is doing, they're, they're growing, and that is putting pressure, obviously, on Netflix. More variety is obviously you know, not a good thing um, in the content space because you only have so many, much time in the day to watch uh, content. And so with Netflix, you have you know, increased competition, which has hurt the stock. But I do think if you look at where they're trying to penetrate internationally, I think that bodes well. Um, they have high penetration in the U.S. and Canada, and they're looking at APAC, they look at EMEA uh, for their growth, and I think that's a strong thing for Netflix. And also, uh, the ad-supported tier, I think that will also bode well for the company. So, still holding on, I think there's still positive trends for Netflix, as they did have a strong quarter last quarter. But they don't have par- they don't have Yellowstone. Well, that's what I was going to ask. <laughs> How much of this is Yellowstone, if at all? I, I, I'm not, I know it's a Paramount uh, property, but I don't know whether it's Paramount Plus. You know, I think it's a lot of a lot of things. I think if you look at you know what a lot of other streaming companies have done with live sports, Netflix is stuck with yeah. the model on just really documentaries. But a lot of other companies are going with live sports. I think that's another area where you're seeing, especially Amazon Prime Video, yeah. draw in a lot of people, um, and that's you know going to put pressure on Netflix. Now, I think you know bringing content, they have, usually have a strong slate in that last quarter, especially over the holidays. So I think that would bode well for the company. You're positive on Macy's. That's our stock number two. Why? You know, the big thing here is, you know, on two fronts, inventory management and as well as the consumer health. And the big thing management said uh, on earnings was they they have increased inventory. So they're ready to meet demand, whatever that demand is um, in this coming quarter. So I think that's a strong sign for for the company. Also, if you look at what the, you know, the National Retail Federation has as far as expectations uh, for Q3, excuse me, Q4 uh, for retail sales, they're actually pretty strong. Uh, we've talked about the bifurcation of, of, of consumers. We talked a little bit about, you know, if consumers are strong or, if, you know, we still have employment and all those different things. But, you know, people are still spending, whether it's cash or on credit. And, and that bodes well for a company that's ready to meet demand. And Macy's has done that, even mm-hmm. though comparable sales were down. They actually had 31 percent, which was digital, which I think is a strong sign. All right. Final name here, Bath and Body Works. Do you what do you think of this? You know, this one, you know, is, is there's some good things and some other things about this company. It's kind of neutral. It's had a pretty strong trading pattern uh, today. And I think it was, you know, pretty much if you looked at what their earnings was there, they still have a, a primarily a conscious uh, consumer and, and demand is kind of going down. They've guided lower. So kind of surprising move um, with the stock here today, kind of volatile. But, you know, I, I think they're, they're going to be a situation where if they can meet demand and control inventory, it would bode well for the company. Um, but the trading kind of kind of interesting. You know, it's interesting because to me, it's like a necessary luxury. It's one of those things. It's one of those little things you can splurge on is higher end hand soap or lotion. And for a lot of people, that feels like, all right, I can still indulge in luxury. Delano, thank you. Contessa, Tyler, thank you. All right. Thank you. Up next, Taylor Swift. That's all you got to know. We'll be right back. Taylor Swift is once again telling the world she's a music industry powerhouse. The pop superstar sold more than two million tickets on the first day of her tour's presale. It's a record number, and it came in spite of the Ticketmaster glitches. They caused outrage among her fans and is sparking a lot of warnings from lawmakers. Ticketmaster has faced a lot of criticism about its influence in the entertainment industry. And Liberty Media CEO, which is Ticketmaster's biggest shareholder, blames demand from its 14 million users, including bots, for the fiasco. We heard some of that uh, today about the, the way that that just caused a meltdown. I think that there could be 
potentially a risk? When you have leading lawmakers saying, hey, here's a reminder, this has outsized influence it's a it's a dominant own live nation or live nation owns ticket live nation so owns live nation is the yeah. promoter and the ticket seller and 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 so it seems to me to be a rather vertically inter integrated operation um, that might attract the attention of the trade commission or and they have and they have the lion's share of ticket sales in this yeah. nation so when things don't go right when you say that you're going to give fans an opportunity to have a first chance to buy Taylor Swift tickets, and then it all goes wrong, there are real questions about I, I'm not sure. I, I don't want to speak out of turn here, but I believe that they are very active in the aftermarket sales, the resale market as well, either through Ticketmaster or through some subsidiary of the same. But yeah. at any rate, uh, Taylor Swift uh, sells a lot of tickets. She's an anti-hero. She, that's right. <laughs> all right. You'll soon be able to buy stock in the Atlanta Braves. Speaking of Liberty Media, it is planning to spin uh, the stock off into its own publicly traded company. It's a rare opportunity for a pure play sports team stock. Now, Rogers Communications owns the Toronto Blue Jays, but it's part of that broader uh, conglomerate. Madison Square Garden Sports owns the Knicks and the Rangers, and England's Manchester United soccer team also trades on the U.S. Uh, New York Stock Exchange as well. Uh, I'm not sure why they would need to raise capital this way, but uh, the Atlanta Braves have been part of uh, a publicly traded company before when they were part of Turner Media, mm -hmm. uh, and then I guess they were sold off and, and, and bought and are part of Liberty Media right now. At any rate, you buy the Braves, you're getting a pretty good team. Well, then people feel like they have a right to manage the team too, right? If you own yeah. shares of the team that you love. What about the Green Bay Packers? You can own They're shares of the- They're owned by the public, Now, yes. you can't resell those shares. They're not worth anything of value, but it's a big bragging right in Wisconsin to hang your- Hang your, stock, your Green Bay Packer stock up on the wall and say. I think they play it. tonight. I think they play this evening. They play the Titans tonight, and they're in, they're not doing well. Those Packers. All right, let's get a, let's get a quick check here on the markets. The, you're seeing the Dow in turning negative once again. Now down um, two tenths of a percent. The S and P 500 is off by half a percent, and so is the Nasdaq Composite. After James Bullard offered some potentially hawkish scenarios for where interest rates may end up falling, oil's falling as well, energy stocks heading lower. That wraps it up for us on Power. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.